Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, a class action lawsuit has been filed on behalf of the victims of the Red Hill Valley Parkway incidents. Hamilton's new city manager will be investigating the hiring of a former neo-Nazi to the city of Hamilton. Also, the prime minister spoke with President Trump last night to ask for an end to the U.S. steel tariffs and for diplomatic assistance with China. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A class action lawsuit has been filed against the city on behalf of the victims who crashed on the Red Hill Valley Parkway. Now, this is obviously a story that we've been talking about for quite some time, and it was hinted for some time that uh, there could actually be legal action as a result of this, and that is, in fact, coming to pass. There are a couple of uh, law firms involved in this. Uh, Rob Hooper is with Grasso Hooper Law uh, and has been prominent in uh, organizing what has now turned into a, a potential lawsuit. Uh, and Rob joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed. Rob, busy day for you. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. Well, my pleasure, Bill. Let's uh, Maybe if you could just outline exactly what the process has been and where you're going on this. So the process has been, uh, obviously, the reports came out in February through City Council and through meetings. Uh, uh, there were several people who had contacted uh, my office saying I had been injured or I'd lost a loved one on the Red Hill, and we thought this was um, due to driver error or some other such thing. Uh, with further investigation, there seems to be a common theme that my car, for no reason, uh, went out of control, slipped out of control, uh, and those people started mounting in my office uh, to to fairly significant number. Um, and so I contacted uh, Scarphone Hawkins, David Thompson, who's a class action lawyer here in town, uh, and we put our heads together and uh, uh, decided that maybe we should uh, strike out and uh, draft a claim and uh, over um, some uh, uh, lots of work of trying to figure out whether this was uh, something that should happen. Uh, ultimately, yesterday, uh, we issued a claim uh, in the name of two representative plaintiffs, being uh, a, a lady who had a single car crash and is uh, totally disabled, and then a family who uh, lost their son and brother uh, as a result of a multi-car crash on, on the Red Hill. Now, so is this in action right now? Is the lawsuit actually, uh, you know, has it been filed? Is, uh, is it up to the city now to respond? Correct. It has been issued and served on the city yesterday. Okay, and obviously it's going to take them some time to digest what's been going on here, uh, and and they'll proceed from there. I got to ask you about something else that I know a lot of people were talking about here, and I got a couple of emails about this after the story broke about this yesterday. Rob, uh, moving forward on this, is the onus on you to prove negligence on uh, on behalf of the city? Uh, correct. The 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 technical legal terms is that there is the municipality act which says. Uh, municipalities should keep their roadways in what's called a state of repair, or it's actually written in the negative. Uh, I must, or the uh, plaintiffs in this case, must prove that the road was in a state of non-repair, which is actually a legislative definition, um, but would be codifying um, the language of basically, is the ro- has the road been negligently built or designed or maintained? And that that is our assertion, I guess, in layperson's language, is that um, the design and uh, construction of this roadway from the get-go, November 2007, uh, has been unsafe for, for passage. So you're going well beyond the asphalt situation here. You're looking at the, the design of the road, too, which is something the city previously had been rather reticent to do. Uh, yes. I mean, uh, without having a lot of, uh, of documents, uh, we, you know, our common sense says we built a roadway using asphalt that we understand was uh, approved in a, in a German study, uh, built 
uh, through a creek, and we used the same pavement at the top of the escarpment that we used at the bottom of the escarpment is what we understand. Um, we're hopeful that, of course, the discovery process of the documents will lead us to better conclusions as to exactly why this uh, uh, roadway is not safe. Now, you know, obviously, as we've been saying on the program for the last couple of days, uh, the city has appointed or had a, a, a judge appointed. It wasn't the city that actually appointed him. Uh, and, and that individual with his staff, I guess they're doing their own investigation. Uh, is that information going to be pertinent and relevant? And is it accessible to you in, in how you present? And uh, I guess actually before you present the case, how you're building the case? Uh, you're right, Bill. One of the things that I think will happen is once the judicial inquiry justice gets up and running here in Hamilton, I believe he sits in, in, in Toronto on a regular basis, and his staff, uh, his, I think, counsel has been appointed yeah. uh, for him, that we will notify them that uh, once there's a hearing about who gets uh, what the law calls standing, uh, that on behalf of the, the plaintiffs in the class action lawsuit, we will ask for standing, and hopefully myself or someone uh, from my office will be there to represent those uh, the group of plaintiffs that we represent uh, each and every day at the Judicial Inquiry and, and do get documents that will lead us to some answers that were either right or wrong about um, our assertions and allegations. Now, when you stand, uh, let's, let's clarify that again, too. If you do have standing granted to you, does that give you the right to sit in on that? Uh, I mean, there's obviously going to be a Q&A with the witnesses that are called. Are you going to go there as a witness or are you actually just an observer? Uh, we would be there as an active participant, as okay. a lawyer acting, asking questions, and that will be up to the uh, Judicial Inquiry Justice to allow us to ask questions of certain witnesses or not ask questions, and that uh, I understand um, in Judicial Inquiries, those parameters will be set by uh, the Justice who's been appointed, mm -hmm. but certainly we will be asking to be there as a full participant, um, as I anticipate the City will. So with that in mind, and, and as you gather information, uh, is is it fair to suggest here, Rob, that uh, that you probably can't move forward with your action until that inquiry is done? Uh, it it is certainly uh, one of the uh, uh, debates that Mr. Thompson and I have had um, as of this morning. As should we move forward with what's called the certification process under the Class Proceedings Act, uh, which in a perfect world pushing. Uh, through the uh, judicial system would probably take nine months to a year in any event. So I anticipate uh, we will be instructed to participate in a judicial inquiry um, to gain some further information and then move forward with the certification process. Now, I, I, I hate to... You know, say let's hey, I saw this on TV. Does it really happen? But when we've heard about class action lawsuits, uh, for instance, in the states where they seem to be much more prevalent than they are here, uh, invariably they ask other people if they are, are a similar situation that they've been harmed in any way. They can join in on that. Is that the same situation here? C correct. I, I mean, I can tell you from the claim being uh, in the so in social media and in media just as of yesterday afternoon that we've probably had uh, upwards of 50 inquiries this morning as to do, do my facts meet the test for the class, which is ironic because in the legal system it's the cart before the horse. The class hasn't been defined by the judge, but we define the class as anybody who's had a car crash on the Red Hill uh, since it opened in 2007. Well, with that in mind, and look at the statistics that we have seen, it sounds as if you're going to get a lot more clients. 
Uh, we have estimated the uh, the report that was released by the city in February suggests in a four-year period there was just, uh, I believe, between 650 and 700 accidents. So if you extrapolate that on the 12 years that it's been open, um, I guess there could be upwards of uh, 2,000 people who have crashed on the Red Hill. Uh, it's uh, going to take some time, obviously, as all things do in the court system. Uh, and a lot of work ahead of us and a lot of uh, information still to be gathered. Rob, I appreciate the time. I know we'll be talking again in the, in the days ahead as this unfolds. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Rob Hooper, of course, with uh, Grasso Hooper Law. Uh, John Best has been following this story, of course. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us on the uh, Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Morning, John. How are you doing today? Just fine, Bill. Thanks. This was inevitable, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. This was inevitable, and uh, this is uh, this is really spiraling into a, uh, a really um, awkward situation for the city. Uh, you know, because we've got a situation where we went for the Cadillac inquiry. Um, you know, the one that involves uh, justice, which means uh, people can be subpoenaed and uh, they can they have to testify under oath. So essentially, the city is spending upwards, it could be more than $7 million uh, in a process that will gather evidence for this potential class action suit. Yeah, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that uh, that uh, Mr. Marshall, Mr. Hooper, are the only. You know, this is all they're going to do. But I mean, this is this is like sitting there and just saying, uh, you know, let's just take notes and record this because everything that's going to be gathered here is is basically evidence that can be used against the city. Well, if they get standing, they'll be able to go in and actually cross-examine or examine witnesses, uh, so they c- they can even go further than simply being a fly on the wall because. Uh, obviously, you don't need standing to sit in the court and take notes. Anybody can do that. Yeah. So this is um, this is really looming uh, as a potential uh, danger for the city. Now, it's possible that, that through the process of the judicial inquiry, that uh, we, uh, you know, information uh, emerges that that says uh, you know there wasn't negligence or it's not provable. We we just don't know yet, but. Wow, uh, this is uh, really taking a turn, and and of course I think we've we've known right from the outset that there was likely to be a class action suit at some point. Well, we don't know, and I, you're right, John. I wouldn't want to try to presuppose the outcome of the inquiry or even the subsequent uh, lawsuit that's that's just been talked about here. But from what we do know, uh, and the statistics we do know, uh, it's it's looking pretty dark. Well, uh, it, it, well, dark be, for the city. It's it's going to be interesting because, um, you know, even if there were design flaws in the road, I, I suspect that uh, a case is going to at least attempt to be made that uh, uh, even with uh, potential design flaws or potential uh, issues around pavement uh, composition, that that nonetheless, if if uh, the speed limit had been adhered to. Um, you know, perhaps these accidents wouldn't happen, and you know, we're we're trying to prove something years after the event, and um, you know, I can see some very contentious uh, expert witness testimony uh, bouncing back and forth here. Well, exactly, because for the longest time here, the last couple of years, anyway, the position of the city, and subsequently the councilors, because they didn't know about these other reports that had yet to come to uh, to, to public uh, knowledge. Uh, they're simply saying the road's fine. It's people that aren't driving properly on it. Uh, mind you, there was a statistical study done a couple of months ago that suggested maybe half of, of, of the collisions might have been caused by driver error and weather conditions, which means half of them weren't. So, that, again, that's, that's, that can be a damning statistic. 
Well, the challenge will be to figure out which half, and uh, you know. But here we are in a situation where we're we're going to have a judicial inquiry uh, with uh, you know a, a you know a pretty rigorous process that uh, you know you can't wiggle out of it unless uh, you know a witness is prepared to perjure themselves. Uh, so it you know you're going to get some I think some fairly definitive information just out of the inquiry. And I'm not sure how this works. This would be a good question. In fact, I'll follow up on this myself. But I believe uh, the city does not carry insurance uh, for this sort of thing. Uh, I think uh, the word I heard on another matter when I was talking to someone at the city is that we self-insure. Um, so, you know, the outcome, if, if, it, if it became an adverse ruling, uh, could have a you know significant impact. Uh, you know, I mean, the amount of money that's named in a lawsuit uh, usually bears very little relevance to what the uh, the final outcome is. But given the number of uh, of accidents that that we're aware of, um, you know, there, there's certainly significant risk here from a monetary standpoint. Going back a few years, uh, the, I guess maybe the biggest legal challenge that city council had faced for quite some time, of course, was the battle with the federal government over the the Red Hill itself. Uh, in that mm-hmm. lawsuit, which eventually the city won, uh, but it took an awful lot of time and an awful lot of money to do this. But John, in your memory, can you recall the city being in this much of a, a legal pickle? I mean, there's this class action lawsuit. Uh, we heard on CHML News this morning that they just dodged the bullet on another lawsuit that uh, could have uh, been significant, of course, about the recycling contracts. Uh, it, it just seems as if things are starting to pile up against these guys. And then, of course, we've got the 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 other nature, of course, about the uh, the guy from the, the white supremacy group that's on there. Now, we don't know where that's going to go yet either, but uh, we've got a new city manager right now. She's got to be scratching her head and say, what did I get myself into? For sure. Uh, no, uh, the answer to your first question is I, I can't recall a, a lawsuit that had this much potential risk uh, as, as the one we're hearing about today. Um, and, and just the, the way the circumstances have unfolded, uh, with with the inquiry, uh, which will probably be the first shoe to drop, um, why would you really get into a a lot of heavy work, uh, heavy lifting, uh, from a legal standpoint until that inquiry is finished? Because clearly, uh, you know, whatever comes out of that uh, is going to be very very uh, relevant to to the lawsuit because. Uh, you know, because the testimony will be given under oath, it, it's, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it's called best evidence. Uh, it's going to be something that's, um, you know, it's going to it's going to carry a lot of weight. So, yeah, no, this is uh, this is a big deal. And, um, you know, the, certainly the public, we, you know, we live in a, a more litigious society now than we did 15 or 20 years ago. And so, we you know, that's part of the reason we're seeing these lawsuits. But, I think also, uh, hopefully, uh, at the end of the day, where there's uh, some kind of process lessons that that maybe we can learn uh, as well. The other element to this too, I know this is a big number that uh, that Rob Hooper was talking to us about what they they're seeking in damages here. Uh, but the other number that nobody's talked about yet, and I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to find out the fullness of time, is I, I got to assume the city's going to have to hire outside counsel to handle this. Oh, absolutely, uh, and that's not going to be cheap. No, uh, no question. Uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, for a minute, I mean, they, they hired outside counsel for uh, matters of far less uh, importance and risk than this. So you can count on that, Bill, for sure. Lots, as they say in uh, the news business, more to come on this one. Uh, John, thanks as always for that. Uh, appreciate the time. Have a good weekend. 
Thanks, Bill. You too. John Best, uh, publisher, rather, of the, uh, the Bay Observer. Uh, and we will stay in touch and stay on top of the story. As I say, the city has been quiet on this yet, but they do have to respond. And council's going to have to develop some sort of a strategy on this, too. And we'll certainly be reporting on that as soon as we get that information. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, controversy continues uh, here at Hamilton City Hall. We just talked about the Red Hill situation, but uh, there are, well, HR concerns right now, too. After the uh, Vice News article that we talked about on the program yesterday unveiled that a municipal staffer had previously been involved in white supremacy groups and had been working uh, in the city for quite some time, we're told. Uh, the new city manager says uh, they, she will be investigating uh, every facet of this, but we don't have a whole lot of information. A lot of questions, but not a much not much information. Joining us to talk with the, uh, the, about this this whole thing and the implications this is having is Bernie Farber, who is the chair, of course, of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, Bernie, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be with you, Bill. Yeah, this is a uh, this is to suggest this is troubling. Obviously, is a massive understatement. I mean, you know, the, 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 there's so many questions here as to how this happened. I mean, there's the individual himself and the character of this individual, uh, and there's some questions about that. But certainly, there's a, there's a process question here too, isn't there? Absolutely, and and I think we should be very clear. Mark Lemire wasn't just involved in white supremacy. He was one of the key leaders in white supremacy at a very dangerous time here in Canada when the Heritage Front was at its peak. Um, he was heavily involved with their technology. He was the first one to, uh, in, in a white supremacist movement, probably in North America, to use the, quote, Internet at, at that time and use uh, BSNs or, or broadcasting groups as means by which to uh, promote their messages. You know, he was smart, he was savvy, he, he, he got it. He worked with people like Ernst Zundel and Wolfgang Droge, who are infamous names in, in the realm of hate in this country. So he wasn't just like a, a, a follower, a tagger on. He was one of the most significant members of a white supremacist group in this country. Well, and we're going to get into the city aspect of this and the hiring practices, et cetera. But the, the, the character of the individual, I think, uh, was in question. When we first heard this story yesterday, uh, I know the Hamilton Spectator has done a fair bit of research on this over the last few days. Uh, the suggestion, apparently, from Mr. Lemire was, look, at that that was a long time ago. I was never really deeply involved in it, uh, uh, and it was my misspent youth. You know, the, uh, But the Spectator prints today that uh, court cases have established that Lemire publicly promoted racist and homophobic views well into his adulthood and were po- was posting things like this on his webpage. So we're getting contradictory information to get, but on the other hand, uh, the posts are the posts. I mean, that's that's a fact. Well, yeah, now, I, I, don't, I don't think we should take what Mr. Lemire says as truthful or, or factual. Uh, the Spectator is a good newspaper. They had a, a, a journalist working for them for many years. I think he might still be there doing columns now and again, Bill Dunphy. Uh, Bill was one of the top journalists in the field uh, doing research and work on, on, on white supremacy. He knows all about Mark Lemire and, and, and the very fact that it wasn't misspent youth. It was it was misspent, uh, you know, life. And um, I, I have no doubt, by the way, I, I, I can't prove this. This is just speculation on my part. But I'm, I'm assuming that these kinds of things don't just go away unless you want them to go away. And I've, I've spent part of my life bringing people out of uh, white supremacist movements and sadly watching them go back in. But this is after years of work in terms of trying to get them to see a different light. We have no indication that Lemire has ever done anything like that. And, and as I said, he was deeply, deeply steeped in, in, in this uh, philosophy. 
Well, to go back to the webpage, uh, this was actually a court case from 2003 in Ottawa, uh, where yep. a lawyer spotted a diatribe called AIDS Secrets on uh, his webpage, uh, and it talked about sick and sleazy pleasure houses of liberated homosexuals. That's his word, not our phrase. Uh, denigrating black people and describing both uh, homosexuals and blacks, and they use their phrase as killers, uh, and on and on it goes. Uh, his defense, by the way, at that trial in 2003 was, uh, look, at uh, he didn't write this, but the assertions are based on true facts. That kind of tells you the mindset here, doesn't it, Bernie? Well, yeah, and it's more than the mindset. Uh, you know, as I recollect, his site was uh, shut down by the Canadian Human Rights uh, Tribunal, and that was as a direct result of work done by my colleague uh, Richard Warman, who was a lawyer and who has taken on people like Mark Lemire and, and others who had neo-Nazi and white supremacist websites. As a, as a matter of fact, the Supreme Court of Canada ended up finding in favor of uh, uh, Section 13 and and, uh, and and the and the work done by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal as somewhat as a result of uh, of, of the Lemire case. So you know, and, and any uh, indication by him that this was just you know he was dabbling in it. It's like you know I've always said you don't dabble in white supremacy. Uh, you don't you know you for example you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. Uh, so uh, I think Mark Lemire, um, people have to know quite clearly, especially when he was hired, what, what was it now, 15 years ago by the city of Hamilton? Apparently, yeah. There, there is no way that he was just uh, semi-involved at that time. He was a leader, not a leader, he was the head of the Heritage Front, which is Canada's most notorious neo-Nazi organization. Uh, the spectator did ask him about the uh, the case in Ottawa and the web posting, and he said uh, in response by email uh, that he did not write, approve, or condone the article. Uh, quote, and, uh, end of quote. Uh, if you post it, Bernie, you're kind of endorsing it, aren't you? If, if you post it, you read it, uh, you're kind of like an editor of a newspaper. And uh, we just saw this happen with your ward news, yep. um, which you know was a neo-Nazi publication where both the publisher and the uh, editor of the newspaper were found guilty of promoting hate. So that, these are not excuses. But what troubles me more, uh, I suppose, I mean, I've known of Mark Lemire for almost two decades, so I, I know exactly who he is and what he's done. And I just find it rather incredulous that he could get a public position with the municipality of Hamilton without anyone checking into his background. I mean, I'm, uh, I was left stunned when I read the, the Vice report on this, thinking, in this day and age, well, okay, let's say there wasn't even Google back, you know, 15 years ago. But, if, you know, if, if uh, Human Resources is doing their job and checking, uh, you know, checking credentials and everything else, there is very little doubt in my mind that a, a cursory check would have found out exactly who uh, Mark Lemire is. Well, and that's the thing that I think everybody's asking. Uh, you know, given where he was and what he was doing, uh, was there no vetting of, of individuals in a situation like this? It, I mean, it, Bernie, when it, I ran for public office, I had to have a police check done on me because that's the law. Uh, if you want to coach I, a baseball team, you have to have a police check done on you. Uh, listen, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing work uh, a couple public school boards had to have a police check done. You're right. When I ran for provincial office, you had to have a police check done. Uh, I can't imagine, and, and if, if the municipality of Hamilton are not doing cursory police checks on employees, then there's something really wrong there because a police check would have immediately flagged Mark Lemire. And then, which raises an, uh, maybe an even more important question here. 
maybe you know because we're we're assuming, or, or at least we're conjecturing at this point, that there could be negligence on the city's part because uh, they didn't do their due diligence with this application, or they did, and 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 they fought nothing wrong with it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the city manager has to investigate this because once he was hired. Uh, as as you've heard, he had an unlisted phone extension and no yep. name attached to his voicemail. So it, it's it's as if there was an attempt to try to hide it. I don't know if it was him or because every other city staffer, we're told, has to have that identification. It, it, Bill, this is so odd. Um, you know, I, I, I've worked with Hamilton police. Uh, Hamilton's around the corner from me. I live in Thornhill. I'm yep. in there often. I have family in Hamilton. Um, you know, that that somebody would willfully and and with forethought hide the fact that uh, Mark Lemire was working for the municipality is is potentially, obviously, deeply troubling. Um, I have to assume and I have to hope that that's, that's not the case, especially in this day and age. I mean, he was working in IT. Think about that. Uh, he's also a very clever uh, IT uh, worker. Uh, he would, I suppose... I have to assume, have access uh, to all kinds of potential public information, certainly municipal workers' information. This is not something that I would like to have in the hands of a person who has been so intimately involved in white supremacy in this country. It's, it's actually a little scary. Well, and again, we don't know that, but I mean, the speculation is he was there for the longest time and he was in a senior position within the ID department. Uh, so obviously, as you mentioned, he knows his way around the Internet. He knows his way around computers. So, you know, what information was he privy to and what did he do with that information, if anything? And, you know, the, the other thing, again, we have to be careful because we're talking about people's livelihoods and everything else. What we do know is pretty specific, and, and we've talked about it. You know, Mark Lemire is who he is. He, is, he, he was the leader of the Heritage Front, the most notorious uh, neo-Nazi group uh, in Canada. Still has that nomenclature as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. And, and so, you know, if you're his boss, if you're the mayor of, of Hamilton and this scandal, which is what it is, you know, it's, it, it's a scandal, erupts. Uh, so what do you do? Uh, well, you know, there, there, I, I'm assuming there has to be uh, procedures in place. Do you uh, suspend him with pay until a, a full uh, uh, examination is done, a full assessment is done? Is he still working? If he is, does he still have access to, to files? I mean, these are questions that, that uh, people should, should be asking themselves. In a day and an age where uh, white supremacy has gone from evil, hateful words to evil, hateful actions, to violence and to murder. Um, you know, we have to be so ahead of the game now that if we have information like this, we have to be ultra-careful, not just sort of lay back and see what happens. Well, as uh, our friend Andrew Dressel pointed out in his piece in the spec today, I mean, there's, there's thousands upon thousands of people that work for the city of Hamilton, and I'm sure that uh, in their personal lives there are some views that they probably hold that we would probably disagree with, if not find repugnant. I mean, I'm sure that happens in any workforce, that, that those situations. But this is a key area, and this is a high-profile individual who has a, yeah. had been an advocate and might still be, for all we know, an ad and, advocate for hatred. And, and it's, it's, it's more than holding, you know, unpleasant views or, or you know, ideas that others would disagree with, with political or, or, or otherwise. You're, you're quite right. This was a person who's, uh, who not only held views, but promulgated those views, promulgated hateful views against people of color, against Jews, against Native people. Um, you know, he was, you know, I, I, I'm assuming still is, a white supremacist. 
it's it's really it's relatively black and white, and it's 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 quite surprising that we're having this discussion. You know, what is human resources doing, and you know, how will this get resolved? I mean, what, what what is the expectation of the people of Hamilton when they hear this, in the light of what's been happening over the last two years, uh, where white nationalists have been involved in some of the most uh, ugly things that that one can think of? Do you want a person who is an avowed white nationalist to have access to private and personal information? I mean, that to me is one of the key issues here that that has that has to be discussed and has to be answered today and not, you know, not wait six, seven weeks, two months for an investigation to be completed. If they didn't know, I mean, the city staff, if they didn't know about this guy's background, then they dropped the ball. If they did know and thought it was no big deal, uh, then I've got a problem with that, too. And, and even, I mean, we've heard this debate about, you know, what's gone on with the Trump family, for instance, Bernie, you know, with with access to information and, and their status, of course, uh, with access to key information and sensitive information. Uh, if they did know and thought it was no big deal, did they also think that, yeah, he can have access to all that stuff, don't worry about it, I'm sure he's going to be fine with it. Uh, there's a lot of questions staff are going to have to answer here. Well, absolutely, and, and let me just tell you a small story. I mean, back in the 1990s, when Mark Lemire was fully, fully involved with the Heritage Front, um, and the and CSIS, uh, the intelligence agency, actually installed a mole uh, by the name of Grant Bristow to help break up uh, the Heritage Front, uh, in in the report by the by by CSIS uh, of, of that time period, it came out that <clears throat> there were attempts by the Heritage Front to discover the addresses of, of uh, certain anti-racists, myself included, and that uh, Mr. Bristow actually ran interference as a means by which these people were not able to find the addresses of uh, of, of anti-racists. I was actually on on a named hit list. Uh, where there was an actual plan to come into my building and, quote, take me out. Now, Mark, I'm not saying that Mark Lemire was uh, actively involved in trying to do that, but I can't imagine that he wasn't either. And it was at a time when he was doing the technology information for the Heritage Front. That's something for people to start thinking about. Uh, that's, that was then, and now it's even more intense. So I'm, 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 I have to say, in, in this one instance... I'm glad that I'm living in Thornhill as opposed to Hamilton, because if I knew that there was a guy like Mark Lemire who had access to municipal roles, um, I, I would be going to the police saying, look, I'm, I'm really concerned that this, that this man has access to my personal information or potential access to my personal information. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's more than one or two counselors or former counselors that are kind of concerned about that, and, or other staff members for all we Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I saw a picture just very recently, and I think it was published either in Vice or, or the Spec, uh, with with uh, Mark Lemire, you know, arm in arm uh, with Paul Fromm, the grand, you know, daddy of, of uh, neo Nazism in in this country. Yeah, who ran uh, who ran know, for mayor here in the last election? You don't just hang out with Paul Fromm, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I saw him at a at a hotel. I walked in the opposite direction. Um, there's something really not good about what's going on here, and I, I, it leaves a really sour taste in my mouth. And uh, Mayor Eisenberger, uh, that's his name, right? Fred Eisenberger? Fred, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, really, the buck does stop with him. He's the mayor. And I, I was a little put out by the fact that he, he had a very, you know, what I would call benign statement when this was first, uh, you know, that, that when this first came out. This is a serious situation. You know, uh, 
people should be concerned about this situation, and the mayor has to be very concerned. And his first word should have been, if this is correct, I am appalled, and I am immediately calling for, uh, for an investigation. We are going to suspend uh, Mr. Lemire with pay until the investigation is complete. A police officer does one, you know, one minor thing wrong. He's suspended with pay until the investigation is complete. Why would the same not happen for, for uh, a municipal worker in a similar kind of situation with access to very sensitive information? No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I've received a lot of emails and social media and posts and tweets saying, you know, fire him, get him out of there. I, I don't, you don't do that. You can't do that yet. No, no, no. There has to be a process. There and, ha- that's, and, and that's why you do put people on leave with pay until this kind of thing is worked out. And that's, that should have happened immediately. I mean, I'm assuming that Mr. Lemire's at work today. We don't know that he isn't, uh, because the city manager, again, with her comments, was very vague about how how they are going to handle this going forward. Right. Uh, she says she's going to investigate it, but we don't know what his status is, nor the status of staff who may be involved in this either. Well, I, I, I think at the very least, the city has a responsibility to its uh, to the municipality and to its citizens to tell them exactly the uh, steps that they are going to take to investigate and, and, and get this result. I mean, every every other major kind of uh, you know uh, government agency does that by by right, and uh, you know just to say we're going to look into it doesn't give me much comfort. Wouldn't give me much comfort if I was a citizen of Hamilton. Well, it's a black eye for the city staff, and and that's unfortunate. I mean, just the first segment before you joined us, Bernie, we're talking about the class action lawsuit about the the Red Hill Expressway in the east end of the city, the number of fatalities and injuries, uh, and there's a, a suggestion at this stage anyway that staff withheld information for the to city council and to the public about the road safety on that. So that's there. Now you've got this, and you have to question the hiring practices that, yeah, uh, that the city has, has, is using. I mean, there's a code of conduct here, but shouldn't those, those same parameters in the code of conduct apply to the hiring process too? I, I, as a matter of fact, in any place that I've worked, in charity work, in uh, NGO work, there's always a code of conduct that, uh, that always applies. Uh, you know, I've hired many people over the course of my three decades in work, and, and I've checked every uh, reference, uh, always done police checks where necessary. I mean, this is just common sense. And, and you know, in, in, in when, you're, when you're hiring municipal workers to, uh, to be involved uh, and, and have access to such personal information, you better be double-checking and triple-checking that you're hiring the right people. So... Yeah, there, there, there is an issue here, and there's got to be a shakeup to find out exactly what has transpired. Well, we've got to get some answers, and we've got to get them pretty soon on this, too. Bernie, as always, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Take care, and good luck. You too. Bernie Arbor, of course, chair of the uh, Canadian, Farber, rather, the, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, and again, uh, the city manager charged uh, with uh, looking after this stuff, and she, I'm hoping, is going to have some answers to this sooner than later. I mean, this is, this is pretty cut and dried. Why did this happen? How did he get hired? Did he disclose his past when he was uh, going through the job interview? And did somebody say no big deal? Or was, was he withholding information? Pertinent information, you'd think, too. Like we said at the beginning, lots of questions, not very many answers yet. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, and uh, Donald Trump spoke last night uh, by phone. It was a teleconference. Uh, and uh, obviously there's an awful lot to talk about between these two gentlemen and these two countries uh, with some of the things that are going on internationally and certainly across the 49th parallel these days. It's interesting to, to note that uh, the... Uh, Head of the uh, high, the Common uh, Trade Commission, International Trade Commission, was also in Washington with his contingent over the last couple of days, meeting with congressional leaders and trying to explain to them 
the the kind of grief that Canada is going through right now because of the Huawei arrest and of course the the Chinese retaliation. You know, we already know about some of the the tariffs that have been imposed on Canadian goods. The arrest of two Canadians down there. And uh, sadly, Mr. Iking, who's the chairman of that committee, was shocked to find out that most of the congressional leaders had no idea what was going on. I mean, I know they've got their own problems down there, but just the same, this is this is international news and this is trade news, and you know, I guess they're kind of U.S. centric. So uh, the Trudeau meeting with Trump, the, the phone conversation, obviously those were the issues that were going to be discussed, including NAFTA, by the way, or whatever they want to call it, depending on which side of the border you're on. So this, is this going to resolve anything? Uh, conversations like this. Let's ask Marvin Ryder from the Degut School of Business at McGrath University here in Hamilton. Hey, Marvin, how you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. I'm surprised, actually. We didn't get much of an idea or any inkling that these guys were going to get on the phone with each other. We knew there was a Canadian contingent down there in Washington trying to lobby uh, about NAFTA and about the tariffs, but that's been going on for months now, hasn't it? Well, it has, and of course, the first thing is, I'm not just sure who decided to call whom. Was this Trump calling uh, Trudeau or Trudeau calling Trump? Uh, I, I can argue both sides of this. Uh, Trump clearly is into the last 24 hours before he uh, threatens to put enhanced tariffs against China. Uh, Bill, just to set this up for people, the United States buys about $535 billion worth of goods from China each year. The vice versa, China only buys $110,000, 120, uh, $120 billion worth of goods from the United States. So there's a $400 billion trade gap and there's been no secret that Mr. Trump wants to reduce this. He wants China to voluntarily, you know, sell fewer goods on one hand and buy more goods on the other. And so there have been entering into these long talks themselves about trade with China. Uh, last Friday, China sort of took it back to square one. And that led Mr. Trump last weekend to say, well, if that's your attitude about it, I'm going to enhance the tariffs on $200 billion of products. Right now, there's 10% tariffs. He's going to up that to 25%. And then on the remaining $310 billion or so, I'm going to put a new tariff of 10% billion, 10 on those things. And all of that would be effective at midnight tonight. So I could imagine Mr. Trump calling Mr. Trudeau to say, look, this is what I'm doing. You should know about this, what's going on here. On the other hand, I can also imagine Mr. Trudeau calling Mr. Trump because of the Huawei situation. Uh, earlier this week, the uh, extradition trial from Madam Mung from Huawei kind of got started again, although the core issue around the extradition still hasn't been debated. Madam Mung is suggesting that there were other human rights violations for her and others, and judge, uh, courts are being heard of what they call pre-trial arguments, which is going to go on. This, this trial could go on for months, and of course, every day that goes by, China is unhappy, and they express their unhappiness by doing things to Canadian goods, whether it's not buying canola or reducing the amount of pork they're buying, or whatever it happens to be, which have big economic consequences here. And remember, we only arrested Madam Mung because the United States asked us. We're kind of hoping the United States, in talking to China, would mention, by the way, you're doing some bad things to Canada. It's not Canada's fault. We're the ones who instigated this. So I could imagine either one of them uh, instigating this phone call, but you would ask the key question, is anything going to change? And I think from Mr. Trump's perspective, his current problems with China, i.e. these trade talks that he's got directly with them, are going to uh, dominate his discussions. 
Canada is collateral damage, and I doubt he's going to step forward and do anything to help us. Well, there is the problem. And, and, and when you look at the logistics, as you just mentioned, it's not going to go away anytime soon. I mean, you're right. The extradition hearing sort of got underway, but all they really decided that day uh, was allowing her, she's under house arrest, to move to one of her bigger houses. I guess she felt cramped in 7,500 square feet and figured, you know, I've, yeah. I've got to have some room to breathe, for heaven's sake. So that that's yeah, all they yeah. really resolved. So this this is yeah. going to take months, if you, you would think. And in the meantime, we're hurting. I mean, that's what the U.S. Uh, you know heard from the, the Canadian contingent the other day. Uh, I think the phrase they used was, you know, we're getting hit big time here, and, and we've asked you guys, remember you and I talked about two weeks ago, that they asked the U.S. to intercede with the, uh, the, the two Canadians that have been arrested. They haven't done anything about that that we know of right now. There's never been any mention of anything like that. Right. So you, you also pointed out in the discussion, Bill, that uh, our discussions primarily have been with the administration, i.e. the president and the cabinet ministers, and in past years, when you do that, when you discuss something with the president or the cabinet, they then uh, take your information and pass it on to the people in the House of Representatives and the senators. There's a, we call it a transparency of flow, data gets shared so that everyone understands what's going on. Well, another hallmark of the Trump administration seems to be that when you talk to one person, that person never talks to anybody else. Uh, and so yesterday, while they were down there talking about trade, they, they went and spoke directly to people in the Senate, people in the House of Representatives, and got this response, oh my gosh, I didn't know this was going on in Canada. I wasn't aware that there was collateral damage happening to one of our closest allies. Oh, that's terrible. And, and you think to yourself, really? You're just learning about this now? You said, is it American-centric? Well, yes, in a way it is, but it's also a case that you can't act on information if, you don't, or if you're not given that information. And clearly the, the Trump White House doesn't pass things on very well. Could you define the relationship between the United States and China right now? Because I'm, I'm getting very, very perplexed trying to figure this out, Marvin. Uh, on the one hand, he's trying to smack them over the head with these tariffs, and on the other hand, he's trying to organize a trade deal with them. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, he's, this is the stick and carrot approach. So the carrot is he'd like to have a trade deal where they can all kiss and make up. It's not exactly the USMCA or NAFTA 2.0. He's not trying to get free trade with China. He just wants a better deal for the United States. That's a very common theme for Donald Trump. So that's the carrot approach. And what he's in essence saying is, and if you don't uh, do something for us, if you don't give some concessions, if you don't help us out in some way, then I'm prepared to wield that stick. And he has set an artificial deadline of midnight tonight uh, to, to warn them about this. Now, he had actually put this deadline on months ago uh, at a much earlier time, but because they were talking, he took it off. And I will say that China is not completely to blame or not to completely innocent in this discussion either. Uh, one of their diplomatic uh, tools is to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and never do anything. So they can always say, well, no, 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 we're, we're engaged, we're chatting, we're we're moving forward. You go, but yes, a year has gone by and nothing has fundamentally changed on whatever it is you're talking about. So their, their strategy is we call sometimes call it talking death. They just keep talking you to death until such time as you give up. Uh, so you have these two different approaches. Uh, Mr. Trump, who wants to make magic happen immediately, and China, who wants to talk you to death. So to incent them to do something, he has threatened these tariffs. Whether he'll do this at midnight tonight, um, uh, will they have a deal by midnight tonight? The vice premier of China is in Washington. There are talks going on. He's apparently scheduled a phone call directly with the premier of China at some point during today. Could something break? Absolutely. This is grand diplomacy on the highest level. 
but at the same time, he's not prepared to take his threat off the table because he feels these threats motivate people. So where does Canada fit into this? Because obviously we were trying to have talks with China about a trade deal as well. That's That's gone south now because of the year with the Huawei arrest. Uh, as a matter of fact, well, it's been in, just in the opposite. A, yeah, in a way, Bill, um, uh, I, I have said on the record that if I was the prime minister, the thing I would do is I would send our people to China. And I've had a few people stop me and say, Marvin, you don't understand Chinese diplomacy. You don't send your people. You wait to be invited. And apparently there is an invitation for a Canadian delegation, including Christian Freeland, to go to China to talk about our trade issues, but not until June, a month from now. I view this as more of a priority. I view this as, a, as an issue that I'd like to get resolved sooner rather than later. But again, I think because America's on the list, this is a battle between the number one and the number two economic power in the world, Canada, who's among the top 10 economic powers in the world, but we're not number one or number two. I think they're just saying, you just wait, just wait your turn. We've got to get this other thing done first. Uh, and so unfortunately, we have to cool our jets. And again, we're collateral damage in all this. Our concerns are quite real, and the pain is quite real. And yet, we have to wait for China to invite us to, to engage in that discussion. It will happen, but in the meantime, we just have to slog through this. Well, if there's a delegation going to China, let's, I, I, I would suggest they leave former Ambassador John McCallum off the trip. Uh, just, you know, I don't want to make any more waves then. But, but what about the, a bargaining chip? I mentioned this in my blog today. Is, is this conversation that the President and the Prime Minister had last night, uh, we've asked them to intercede when it comes to the, I almost call them hostages, the, the two wrongful arrests down there, mm-hmm. the Canadian citizens. Uh, they don't seem very, uh, you know, aggressive pursuing that at all. But if if it, if the tone of the conversation was, look, at we put our necks on the line for you guys, and we're we're paying for it big time. The least you can do is dot dot dot. Well, lift the tariffs. Yeah, or do something, do well, something positive for us. And I hear you, Bill, and and that makes perfect sense to me. But I, I doubt. Uh, that Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump has a view of the world that is all about Mr. Trump and his administration and what's in it for me, what, what's in it for me. I would think the better bargaining chip would say, look, if this is going to keep going, I've got news for you. We're letting Madam Mung go. Uh, this, she didn't break any laws in Canada. She hasn't violated any rules here in Canada. We did you a favor, and look what it's come back to, and you don't have our back on this at all. I'll tell you what, if you don't make, this is the kind of language Trump would respond to, if you don't make magic happen by, I'll pick a date here, May 21st, then guess what? We're canceling this and letting her go. Maybe that would work better than than trying to appeal to their uh, deeper sense of right and wrong. Well, anything like that. I mean, I guess the only way you can play a game like this is use the same rules that he uses. Exactly. And that, that actually, believe it or not, is what he writes about in his books, The Art of the Deal. You know, you do whatever it takes to get the deal. You say whatever it takes to get the deal. The deal is the most important thing. That's not diplomacy. That's not the way how international relations normally work. And Bill, I'm going to say this out loud. I am hoping that the next election will lead to a different president of the United States and we can get back to the normal rules of diplomacy. But that's two years from now. And in the meantime, I think we are forced to play the game the, the way Mr. Trump likes to play it. And so if we have to take the gloves off and get the elbows out, so be it. Well, and, and that's, I think, instructive to actually remind our, ourselves about that. This is not the way Canadian-U.S. relations have always been. There was kind of a quid pro quo that, okay, yeah, you know what, you did kind of get our backs on that. So, you know, we've we got to pay you back. We've got to pay it forward in some way. Uh, clearly, uh, you know, with, with Trump, it's, uh, it's a lot of take and no give. Right. So, uh, you know, Mr. Trump also doesn't 
because he's not schooled in diplomacy and he didn't grow up in government, he's a private sector guy and that's fine. I just don't think he's aware of things that Canada has done over the years where we've stuck our necks out. You know, most famously, you go back to 1980 and the hostages that were in Iran and how we saved a number of Americans, uh, found a way to transport them out of the country in a way that nobody else could do for them. There was a lot of talking at the time is that we'll be eternally grateful for you or, you know, responses on other uh, magic occasions over the years where Canada stood by the United States. Mr. Trump has said, but, but I'm new, and you haven't stood by me since I've come in, so, you know, it's just, I'm, that's my measure of things. And that, he's a very short-term kind of guy. It will change, and I, I'm very confident when I look at potential people down the road that, that they will better understand this. But that's the man who's the president at the time being, and we have to play by his game. So, again, in terms of our issues, they're very important to us, but on his priority list, they're down at number five or six or ten on a on a three item list. Well, listen, the, the, the U.S. gratitude for what uh, Canadians did during the Iranian hostage thing, I think, evaporated right after Ben Affleck's movie for a couple of years ago, where they took all the credit for it. Some American film company, and uh, Argo was the name of the movie, by the way. And, and yeah. as as for the other, you know, the the the, the you know the payback. Uh, should remind, I mean, Trump was in New York for 9-11, and I know he was so self-centered on the fact that I think his first reaction when the d- buildings went down is, I own the tallest buildings in Manhattan now, I, I, which, which means he doesn't quite have his priorities straight. But maybe they could give him a couple of tickets to come uh, from away, because, I mean, that's obviously telling the story. Maybe he might, that might cl- maybe jog something in his memory. Well, it might, Bill, but, you know, it, it, this is what this is classic Donald Trump. Uh, this has been the way he's lived all of his life. What's in it for me? What have you done for me? And when you say, by the way, I did this for you, now I need you to pay me back. Oh, that was last week. Uh, I don't remember this now. He is a very interesting man that way. It's not the kind of business ethics I teach at the university. It's not the kind of business people I ask students to aspire to. But all of that is irrelevant because he is the president, and we do have to deal with him on his terms. So what Mr. Trudeau is doing, and and by the way, I think almost all the premiers are doing, and even some of the mayors are doing, is with their American counterparts. They keep raising the issues that are important to Canada. We do have a lot of support if you just go below the administration, if you deal with the representatives and the senators and the governors, they understand Canada's case. And, and I think quite genuinely yesterday when the senators say, I just didn't realize some of the things that were happening to you because of our conflicts with China. My goodness. Now, will that translate into action? So far, it hasn't. A lot of concern, a lot of hand-wringing, not a lot of action because Mr. Trump's a form of formidable foe to take on. But I think that's what we have to keep doing. We can't give up making this case. And then when an opportunity presents itself to take action, that's when we have to take action. Marvin Ryder, thanks as always, Marvin. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You do the same. You bet. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.